were a very tall man. <laughs> okay. It is good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. If you would turn with me in your Bibles or on your phones or whatever you have uh, to Exodus 21, verses 23 to 25. Hopefully these verses are not new to you, both for regular attenders and for those that are visiting for the first time. For those of you that are visiting for the first time, we've spent the last 15 or so weeks uh, going through a topical series on misused and misunderstood phrases uh, and verses from the Bible. And the idea is that we spend time thinking through the ways in which uh, we as Christians, we get things wrong, okay? We like to think that we get things right a lot of the time, uh, but the truth is that we're all sinful and we make a royal mess of things on a regular basis. So let's dive right in. Exodus 21, verses 23 to 25. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Let us pray before we begin. Father in heaven, as your children, we tend to make a mess. We are sinful and do what we want regardless of your direction. Lord, as we look at the way in which we twist this particular passage of your word, would you be gracious to us? Would you reveal uh, our sin and sinful practices this morning and lead us to the cross where you forgive us all our sins? Help us now as we come to hear from you and not from me. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. This hasn't been done before. Quick show of hands. How many of you have uh, heard what happened with uh, Burger King's latest commercial controversy? Okay, not a lot of you. So let me tell you what happened. So Burger King uh, decided to be a little cheeky uh, with their marketing, and they ran an ad, and their, uh, uh, they ran an ad about their signature burger, the Whopper, right? And so it's just this guy standing in front of the camera holding a Whopper saying, you're watching a 15-second ad from Burger King, which is unfortunately not enough time to tell you all about the fresh ingredients that go into a Whopper. Now, this is a problem, but I have an idea. Google, what is a Whopper? And that's the end of the, the ad. And as you might have surmised, what happened across the nation, across the land, was in people's homes, Google Home, which is a voice-activated assistant, turned on, activated at the command, Google, what is the Whopper? And they started to read off of uh, the Whopper's Wikipedia page, okay? So, uh, you know, it's a genius way to sort of hijack in-home technology for their ad campaign. Well, Dave Dorse and I are not ones to miss, you know, an opportunity. And Dave Silvernail, our senior pastor, has an Amazon Echo in his office. And it works much in the same way that a Google Home does and it does not have voice recognition software like Siri does, and so all you have to do is say, oh, I don't know, Alexa, play Barney theme song. <laughs> or Alexa, play Taylor Swift. Or knowing Dr. Silvernail's dislike of metal and rap, Alexa, put together an extensive playlist of Iron Maiden and Run DMC. <laughs> and of course, you pair it with Alexa, volume up. <laughs> 
And as you might imagine, Dave Dorse and I have had a lot of fun with Dr. Silvernail at his expense. So if you're relatively new to Potomac Hills, you don't have any context as to why I might bring up this story. And if you've learned anything from this series, it's that context is king. So let me give you a little bit of context. Uh, a, a while back, at the beginning of this series, our intrepid senior pastor might have told you a, a couple of times about my knowledge of classic rock, or lack thereof. And, you know, I still get comments from a lot of you, especially my students, about my lack of knowledge about classic rock. I mean, literally on our drive, our three-hour drive to Majnik, which is a, a senior high youth retreat, Miles Doris put together a classic rock 101 playlist, which was two hours and 43 minutes long, okay? And so now I'm getting my revenge, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? Well, unfortunately for me, as I prepared for this particular sermon, I became increasingly aware of how ironic my actions and this particular introduction are, because I'm preaching a sermon on how you cannot use this passage to justify taking revenge. So, quick roadmap of where we're going to go. Okay, we're going to look at Exodus 21 and what it says in its context first. And then we're going to look at two ways that we misuse this passage. And then hopefully we're going to see how the gospel transforms the way that we deal with folks that hurt us, how we get back at people. So, Exodus 21. What do we know about our context of our passage today? Well, Exodus 21, not surprisingly, comes after Exodus 20, which is the famous passage of the Ten Commandments. And there God lays out his moral law. And so in Exodus 21, which is the beginning of what scholars call the Book of the Covenant, we get God's moral law applied to Israelite society in the forms of law that will govern how said society will work. And the phrase, an eye for an eye, comes smack in the middle of laws laying out what to do when crimes of violence occur. God starts back in uh, verse 12 with a section about crimes that require the death penalty. Generally, sort of murder, attempted murder, or criminal neglect that amounts to attempted murder. Now, we could get into the principles that should guide Christians today concerning capital punishment and the death penalty and how to approach it in a fallen world. That's really a different sermon for a different day from a different passage, and it's a, we'll just sort of have to content ourselves with uh, saying that it's a complex issue with Christians of good character and doctrine being on sort of both sides. So we're not talking about capital punishment, but we are talking about sort of revenge, and so we, get, we come closer to our passage, and we find, uh, sort of starting in verse 18, a passage that deals with lesser crimes of violence. These are the fights that result in injury, but not death. And so they don't invoke that life-for-life life death penalty. And this is the immediate context of our, of our, our verses today. The situation, starting in t- verse 22, that prompts the phrase, an eye for an eye, is a fight between two men that involves an innocent bystander, in this case, a pregnant woman. And now, presumably, the the two men didn't intend for the woman to be involved, but, you know, even accidental harm requires justice. And so God lays out the principle of eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And this is what's often called lex talionis, or the law of retribution. 
But while it's called the law of retribution, it's probably actually better called the law of compensation. Most commentators agree that ancient Israelite judges would have understood this phrase non-literally. If you look at the verses immediately following the verses today, the principle of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, the penalty for a master destroying the eye of one of his slaves is not that the master also loses one of his eyes, but rather that the slave gets his freedom. And so it's not a one-to-one correspondence. And the same happens if, a, if the master knocks out the tooth of his slave. And so the, sh- the principle is not to be strictly interpreted, but rather to be applied such that the punishment is equal to the damage done. True justice requires that the punishment fit the crime. The punishment must not be too lenient because then justice is not served. But it also can't be too harsh because then there is an injustice against you, the initial perpetrator. For instance, let's take speeding. We all do it, right? So let's say you're driving to church and you're going 55 in like a 25 zone, right? Not great. The cop pulls you over. Now, he can't just let you off with a warning, much as you hope he would. He can't let you off with a warning because you're going 30 over the speed limit and you're endangering yourself and others. That would be, like, too lenient for him to just let you off with a warning. But he also can't just, like, chop off your arm and say, let the stump of your arm be a lesson to you not to speed. (laughs) That would be, like, way too much, right? And so commentators, um, and commentators would also agree that rabbis, Jewish rabbis, believe that the principles set out would be the maximum for, for compensation. And this really limited the very real desire of the ancient world for excessive retribution. But it also protected the weak, underprivileged, and poor from the powerful and wealthy. It was common also in the ancient world for the law to be applied unequally between social classes. Those with more power, influence, and wealth and fame could get away with a lot more than those of the lower social classes. And so in one phrase, God does away with both excessive retribution and class-driven injustice. Another thing, to, uh, another thing that is important to note is that the language of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, is clearly found within the context of God laying out civil law. The principle of eye for eye is situated clearly within the context of the authorities and courts. The other instances where this phrase is used in the Bible, in Leviticus 24 and Deuteronomy 19, are also within the context of laws setting up statutes and institutions that would govern the Israelite people. And so it is clearly not directed at addressing interpersonal relationships. Rather, these verses were meant to be guides for the judges and elders of the people as they sought to handle justly the cases that came before them. Okay, so now that we know how the passage ought to be used, how has this phrase been misused? First, we tend to use this, these verses as a justification for retribution on a personal level rather than a legal level. So we apply this passage on a personal level rather than a legal level. Well, what do I mean by that? Remember, this phrase is located within a passage where the principle is applied by authorities to crime. While penalties for crime uh, were sometimes carried out by victims, the penalties themselves were always determined 
within a court of law. And there's a reason why uh, taking revenge or seeking retribution is often called taking the law into our own hands. Okay? And when we seek retribution personally, we have decided to ignore the rule of law. And so we cannot say that we are justified in our actions. In fact, we are transgressing the law by doing so. And besides, you know, vengeance and retribution are not for individuals to mete out anyways. Deuteronomy 32.35, Romans 12.19 and Hebrews 10.30 all direct us not to avenge ourselves because the Lord has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so we ignore, that the uh, we ignore the fact that retribution is not our right, but rather a right given to authorities and to the Lord. Second, we tend to make the punishment not fit the crime. Our sinful hearts tend to go overboard when we seek vengeance or retribution. And we really don't have to look further biblically um, than Genesis 4 and the story of Lamech's boast. And Lamech is a descendant of Cain. He boasted that while the Lord promised him to take sevenfold, of, sevenfold vengeance upon anyone who harmed Cain, he, meaning Lamech, would avenge 77-fold. Okay, talk about sort of blowing things out of proportion. Our hearts are generally not satisfied with equality. When we are hurt, we often want to make them hurt more than they hurt us. Right? The principle is that hurt people hurt people. Our hearts yearn not to give tit for tat, but to repay with interest. For instance, you might go up to your little sister's boyfriend and say, if you break her heart, I will break your legs. Okay? That's not quite the proportional response that Exodus lays out, okay? Unless you think that the law is clear and only idiots could mess this up. I mean, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth is pretty clear, right? The educated rabbis of Jesus' day did exactly this. They messed it up. Their interpretation was that Exodus 21, 23 to 25 demanded, required vengeance, in their eyes, justice could not be served without it. Theirs was a strict and literal translation that commanded and demanded vengeance. For them, eye for an eye was a starting point for, for punishment rather than the cap that restrained excessive retribution. And Jesus called, on, called them on it. If you page over to Matthew 5, uh, verses 38 to 42... Christ corrects this wrong interpretation. He flatly rejects the personal vengeance interpretation the Pharisees and rabbis promoted. Rather, he requires them to turn the cheek, to give up their tunics, and to literally go the extra mile for their enemies. In short, we are to show mercy to those who do not deserve it. We are to give grace to those who wrong us. And for Christ, crimes against us should not be viewed as a motivator for vengeance, but rather as an opportunity to show grace and mercy. Now, we could stop here and we could sort of say, we're done, we can go to lunch, shortest sermon of all time, right? We could stop here. We've seen how folks mess up this verse. We've seen how Christ addresses it. And I could wrap things up just exhorting you to be more gracious and merciful, right? I could encourage you to be mindful of Jesus' approach to those who wrong him, but let's be honest. 
would likely be legalism done by our own strength. And I doubt that the sermon up to now has been sufficiently personal to motivate you to do anything. Up to now, most of us have approached this sort of passage academically. We want to know how to use it properly, how to understand it rightly. But as I said at the beginning of this sermon, the more that I dwell on this passage, the more that I'm convicted of my own problem with retribution. It's my first impulse, it's my first impulse to deny that. I'm not out there avenging myself on others. I'm a pretty nice guy, I think. I'm a pastor for gosh sakes, you know? Like, I'm not, I'm not like, you know, some guy laying out elaborate plans like the Count of Monte Cristo to get back at my, my enemies. Surely I don't have a problem with retribution, with revenge, with vengeance, but I actually think that I do. I actually think that you do too. So why do I say that? It's because I think, because as I think about retribution or revenge more, I see it rearing its ugly head in sort of my day-to-day life. For instance, um, in the days and weeks uh, after my son came home from the hospital, uh, I, I, I sort of noticed a change in my life. Surprise, okay? It's not the change that you might be thinking. Wailing kid, less sleep, all of that. But rather, I saw a change in the way that I treated my wife, okay? My wife has been awesome. She literally had her hands full with him um, every day, every waking moment, right? He's fussy. He really didn't like to be anywhere other than her arms or my arms or just anybody's arms. And so she couldn't put him down. And so uh, between all the things that go, in, go into like feeding him and clothing him and taking care of herself, you know, not surprisingly, not a lot of the housework got done. Dishes weren't done, laundry wasn't done, you know, the house was a mess because, surprise, a toddler was there, right? And it was right and good for her to not do those things. She wisely um, prioritized the care of our son over doing dishes. I can do dishes, right? That's what I'm here for, is to do dishes and to, to help with the laundry and to do all the things that she doesn't have time to do. But as I looked at my heart in that time, what did I find? I found that I became bitter. Why? Because I had come home after a long day at work and I'm tired and I'm irritable and the last thing I want to do is do the dishes, right? That's the last thing I want to do. And so what does my sinful heart say? It says, you're tired, you ought not to have to do the dishes, it's her fault. And I get bitter at my wife for not doing more when it's ridiculous for me to think that she should. And so what happens? Even though I might recognize that it's ridiculous for me to expect her to do more than what she's already doing, I still take it out on her in small ways. I'm moody. I'm short. I'm irritable with her. My tone is sometimes condescending and patronizing. You were at home all day. What what have you been doing? I perceive an imagined hurt. She is intentionally not doing the dishes, and I make her pay in my own little way. 
And whether it's perceived or real, I take my revenge. And it's not just in this area that I seek revenge. There are plenty of other ways that we seek to exact our own revenge. Have you ever felt justified to speak ill of somebody because they've hurt you? Have you ever felt justified giving up on somebody because they've not done right by you? Have you ever been harsh with your friends, your spouse, your children, and felt justified because they're just annoying? Or they're draining? Have you ever gossiped or character assassinated somebody because you were just simply, I'm just telling the truth. I'm just telling it the way it is. I certainly have. But that's all just retribution in its own way. I'm punishing them through my words and my demeanor because of something that they've done to me, whether it's real or not. And it's the little things that I don't seem to connect to Christ's charge to us to be merciful and gracious. It doesn't, like these sort of tones, this demeanor doesn't seem to rise to the level of, oh, I need to be Christ-like. And so I don't seem to connect it to Christ's charge to us to be merciful and gracious. But I'm really just deceiving myself. I exact my revenge through impatience, through irritableness, and through harshness. And to make it worse, retribution isn't even, doesn't even need to be external and interpersonal. Have you ever beat yourself up for something that you did wrong? Have you ever gotten down on yourself because you were awkward that one time at a party? What do we do when we make mistakes or fail to fit our standard of coolness or put-togetherness or whatever? We spend hours in a hole of self-loathing. We beat ourselves up for you name it, and we feel justified because that's what we deserve. And so what's our solution? Not surprisingly, we go to the cross. It's where the Lord's vengeance against me as a sinner is poured out against Christ. The substitutionary atonement of Christ is our solution. It is where justice and mercy literally meet. And we see the Father's mercy to us through the justice displayed at the cross. The cross is the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe that we deserve. That justice requires payment. And Christ took it for us. It's as the old hymn, It Is Well Goes, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Why can we not seek retribution? There are at least three reasons. First, it's unjust to seek retribution against our brothers and sisters in Christ because Christ has already paid for it. Their sin and yours, not in part, but the whole, is paid by Christ. You cannot seek retribution because the penalty has already been paid at the cross. You cannot make them pay twice. Second, we have been given mercy in Christ. Christ calls us to be willing to suffer injury and to show mercy. He calls us to do this because that is what he did. 
He calls us to be conformed to, Im- to his image, to become like him. Did Christ demand wound for wound, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, stripe for stripe? No. He fulfilled Isaiah 50, verse 6, which says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and from spitting. He went to the cross, and while upon it he prayed, Father, forgive them. He's calling us only to give what he has already given us. And lastly, why we cannot seek retribution. We can show mercy and grace because we are secure in Christ. Apart from Christ, the only person who will stand up for me is me. When it's all about my rights, my justice, my happiness that must be preserved and, and avenged, then it's all about me. And if it's all about me, then it's all on me to fight for it. But when we are wronged, do we have a Christian perspective on things? Do we actually believe that Christ is for us and who can be against us? Listen to Paul's confidence in his identity in Christ in Romans 8. Romans 8, verses 31 to 32, and verses 38 and 39. If Christ is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Being in Christ radically changes the way that we handle slights, annoyances, and the normal cost of interacting with sinful people. It calls us to be gracious, not because Christ commanded it, but because we ourselves have received a grace unspeakable. Think about just how annoying, offensive, draining, and off-putting we must be to the Lord. Okay? As we extend grace to those around us that do not deserve it, we get a taste of what Christ deals with when he deals with us. It is as the gospel becomes more precious to us, as we understand more fully the mercy that has been shown to us, that has been given to us, that we are enabled to be changed. It is in Christ that we are shown mercy, and it must be in Christ that we show mercy and forgiveness. But as I said before, there is a temptation for us to leave convicted of the fact that we are actually vengeful people. And it's a temptation for us to leave convicted and desiring to do a better job of being kind and merciful and gracious to us. But there is a temptation for us to sort of grit our teeth, buckle down, and just try to be better. But that's sort of like trying to change a tree's fruit by admonishing it to be a better tree. It just doesn't work that way. But let us rather remind ourselves of John 15, verses 4 to 5. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
we produce better fruit. We see change and transformation in our hearts, not by striving for fruit, not by striving to be less vengeful or less out for retribution, less sort of tit for tat. We don't see change by striving to change ourselves, but by sinking our roots more firmly in the firm foundation that we have in Christ Jesus. If we chase after being more like Christ, the fruit follows. May we be deeply rooted in the cross, the resurrection, and the surpassing good news of our union with Christ. We need to pray. Father, thank you that most of, this, most of the people in this room are not obsessed with grandiose plans for revenge, that they are not people that seek to be vengeful. But Lord, we are also all, all far too comfortable with repaying evil for evil, especially in the mundane and normal interactions that we have with each other. Lord, would you make us a gracious community that seeks to live out the mercy that we have received in your Son? Would you open our eyes to see how we can abide in you that we might bear much fruit? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.